We are uh, uh, part three, um, and uh, we're still in Ephesians 1. Uh, we're going to read Paul's prayer. It's such a beautiful prayer. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so as we read from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. I'm going to read from uh, the NLT. This is Paul's prayer. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority, or power, or leader, or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere within himself. Let's pray again. God, thank you for your word. We pray now that you just speak to us. We illuminate the scripture by your Holy Spirit. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Thank you for this gift. Lord, use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, say whatever you don't. You don't, and we will be careful to give you all the glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So to cover the last two uh, Sundays, just real quick, just to catch us up. Uh, if you weren't here, or just to remind us where we're at, Paul is writing to a church, to churches in the area. Uh, we call it Ephesians, uh, but it's really all those churches. And I've mentioned this um, in past the the Revelation Road, if you will, um, all those churches in that line. And uh, he is writing to this church that's eight years old, and he is trying to encourage the church who has just got together. And it's full of Jewish Christians. It's full of Christian or Gentile Christians who left dark idol worship. Diana, uh, Artemis. Uh, we spent some time going through Acts and seeing where this story uh, originated from. How uh, there was millions of dollars worth of spell books all burnt, and people were upset, of course, because they were losing business. This church is now established. And Paul is writing to them from prison. It's one of his prison epistles, letters. And he's encouraging this church that he's never uh, been to in such a long time. He hasn't been there in a long time. He has such a heart for the people. Um, he wrote the letter to the Colossians to warn them about the Gnostic, uh, fake, weird theology. And now he's trying to get a jump start to this new church just to prepare them. The first three chapters we'll see is all about Christ, all about the individual relationship that people need in Christ and the gift that that is. And then the last three chapters is how a church gets along. 
And then not only that, within the family, within a marriage, within relationships, within work, within all of it. So he's writing this church, writing to this church, and he's encouraging them. And uh, we discussed that the first 14 verses that we read over the last couple of weeks is just one long sentence in Greek. It's almost like you take a big breath and shoot and just keep going. I love run-on sentences. But it doesn't work for us very well in English. And, and so here he finishes off reminding them that they've been adopted, that we've been adopted, that we have an inheritance. And he's reminding them. And then he stops and he prays this prayer. There's four gel prayers that Paul writes. Two in Ephesians, one in Philippians, one in Colossians. And this is while he is in jail and he's writing this beautiful prayer. He reminds them again, uh, the first few verses that they were saved. And this prayer now is revealing to them what his hope is. And again, all these prayers that are written while he's in jail never revolves around getting out of a hard situation. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a hard situation... I pray that it goes away. Then I say, okay, that's not realistic. I pray that you strengthen me. Or really, okay, God, I go back to my first prayer. Get me out of here. Get me out of here, please. And But Paul, and, and you'll see this, and we'll cover this more because there's another prayer that he prays uh, later on in Ephesians 4 that will, will connect the, the dots to Colossians and Philippians. But while he's there, his focus is never get out of a hard situation. It's always focused on as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Christ. This life is not easy. And he's praying that there is hope even if there's a difficulty. He, he points believers, he's pointing us that you already have Christ. You are already starting at an advantage. And if I could sum up Paul's prayer, I would sum it up like this. He says, I pray that they could see themselves the way that you do, Father. That's really what we just read. It would go on, I would say that the undertone is that they would know the love you have for them, and that they will experience this love in a surrendered life to him. And Paul opens up this prayer by pointing to the fact that we start from a solid position. Because right before this, just again, he, he talks about in verse 4 that we were chosen, verse 5 and 6 that we were adopted, verse 7 and 8 we were redeemed and accepted, 9 and 10 we were sealed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then he stops and he's praying. And he's praying to, that Christians understand, regardless of your current situation, that we would recognize that we are starting from a position of hope. And that's what he was writing to the Ephesians and all those churches. That is what he is writing to us. We start from a position of security in Christ, that we have everything that we need. Now, if you're going through a hard situation currently, you're thinking, yes, I know that. I'm a believer in Christ. But I really like the prayers of get me out of here. I do. I do. That's... That's where I tend to go. Or if, if I'm in a situation and I try to handle it on my own and it's not going well, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I should pray. That's what I should have done. Or you pray, and I call it a prayer bomb. You know, I did this all throughout high school, my high school career. There's a test. Oh, I forgot to study, dear God. I hope that I'm smart. Like, but 
But really what he's doing, what Paul is doing, is he's pointing them to what they already have. I like what Warren Wearsby wrote about this. He said, in a quote, Paul does not ask God to give them what they don't have, but prays that God will reveal to them what they already have. He does not ask God to give them what they don't have, he but praises but prays that God will reveal to them what they already have. See, many people around them are still walking around in this occult of this idol worship that is a very dark place. And he just, again, they burnt all of these spell books, many of them, and now they're Christians and these idols, but they're living in Ephesus, which is just a super dark extension of Rome. And they're no longer following these, this darkness, these false gods. The businesses are closing because the, the, no one's buying idols anymore. Can you imagine, just take a brief moment, if you just consider just here in Modesto, if all of these businesses, these underground businesses of trafficking and drugs and on and on and on, if they would have to close because there was no business, the reason they're here is because there's business. Now, granted, I understand the internet and all that. But this is what's taking place. The, the Ephesus is slowly starting to change, but yet, yet they're still trying to work out their baby Christians trying to start a church. There's no more clientele for this dark business, and they're trying to stay away for it. As I was considering this prayer, I was really, honestly, uh, what do I pray for? What specifically do I pray for and how do I pray? And if you've been to Renew on Sundays, you notice that without fail, I tend to pray the same prayer to end it. And I really mean it. But what do you pray for? Specifically, when you are praying for someone, it comes up to your mind, what do you pray for them? Someone has come to your mind, what do you pray for? And this is a, such a beautiful prayer of what Paul is describing that we could pray for one another. He says specifically that they would grow for Christ, grow in Christ, specifically that they would know him and surrender him. To know what they are facing here on earth is only part of what's going on this physical world. It's not the whole story. There's more to God's story. So as we consider that this is a prayer, a beautiful prayer for for God's people then and now, We'll take a look at it. Look at verse 15. He says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. So he's hearing for this. He's encouraged. He looks at their strong faith. He's reminded of what they've experienced all through Acts 19. You can go back and read that. And, and he prays for two things specifically, and then he says that they manifest in three different ways. He prays specifically for the spirit of wisdom, and the revelation and knowledge to grow in Christ, to know Christ in such a way. He prays that the first thing that you grow in is your knowledge. And not just head knowledge. It's so important to recognize that. But a knowledge that transforms your lives as Christ becomes your Lord. There's a difference between God being your Savior. That Christ is your Savior to a difference to when he becomes Lord of your life. Later on in the Ephesians, Paul will get very practical. 
That's why I really enjoy Ephesians. It's very practical at the end. He gives encouragement on how to be a Christian, how to be a Christian in your marriage, how to be a Christian as a single person, how to be a Christian in your parenting, how to be a Christian in your workplace, how being a Christian should and can transform all the areas of your life. But first, you have to be a Christian. How all the areas of your life can be transformed, that it needs to start right here, Before marriage will ever make sense, Christ must be your Lord. Before your parenting, before on and on and on. You must understand who Christ is in your life before all the areas of life make sense. So what is knowledge? What is he talking about? What does it mean about knowledge? Wisdom of knowledge in Revelation. What does the word really wisdom, knowledge mean? Is it cool facts that you can talk to? With your friends later on, some obscure nugget that makes you feel smarter. I always joke that I tell you random things so in the event that you're on Jeopardy, you can say, ah, I know that one. But wisdom, and really in the, in the Greek, what, what's spelled out for us is wisdom is the practical outworking of who God is in your life. Beyond the surface, beyond your head knowledge, It's a lifelong relationship that requires wisdom as you grow, that transform your life. It's more than just knowing. People know Christ. That doesn't mean they believe in Christ. There's a difference. I heard one pastor describe wisdom of knowledge of God like teaching your kids how to ride a bike. He said, if all we ever do is keep the knowledge upstairs but never moves to our heart. It's like teaching your kids how to ride a bike in this matter. When you're teaching your kids how to ride a bike, you don't sit them down in the living room and have them watch hours and hours and hours of people riding bikes. Has anyone ever done that? Or then you show a parts catalog and you go through all the parts of a bicycle and all the part numbers depending on VIN number. Right? Am I wrong? You describe, maybe, maybe you're really smart and you can describe to your child Newton's third law and how it applies to riding a bike due to the fact that applied force on a bicycle moving clockwise direction has an opposite but equal reaction coming to the ground in a counterclockwise direction. What? And you're like, good talk, now you know how to ride a bike. Did anyone learn how to ride a bike? Please, if, I really want you to raise your hand if you learn how to ride a bike this way. No. That's not what you did at all. If you're like me, you say, all right, time to ride a bike. Here's a bike. You're just about to get on the, on the bike. Then the mom says, oh, don't afraid a helmet. Yep, that's right. Helmet. Put on the helmet. Then you say, all right, let's have at it. Then you set them down on the bike, and they're terrified. And you hold the back of the seat, or at least you pretend to hold the back of the seat. But are you going to hold on? Oh, yeah, I promise, right? And what do you do? You let them ride. Early on, you let them fall. Bumps and bruises and tears, and I'm never going to ride a bike ever again, and this is dumb. You, you let them go through it, right? You, it has to be more than just YouTube knowledge of riding a bike. Paul is praying that we as a church would not just have data of God stored up in our head. He doesn't want that. That's good. The rabbit trails I go on every week is one of the greatest gifts God has given me as a pastor. I just love it. 
But it has to go beyond that. It has to go into application. It has to go from your head to your heart to your whole being. God will never be Lord of your life if you only keep him in your brain. Where you're working through your relationship with Christ. And just like riding a bike, you know, you skin up your knees, you fall down, you, you break your chain for the first time. You have to learn how to replace the chain. You have to learn how to face it. And just like in life, when, when then you start to get a little good and a little braver, and then next thing you know, you're jumping off jumps that you have no business doing. Then you fall down again. It's just at different seasons where we learn to trust while we are riding bikes. Like we learn to trust while we're in this life. Ideally, yes, when we ride a bike, we want a comfortable pace and perfect conditions, not too hot, not too cold, where we're riding downhill, but not too steep. That's really sometimes what we want as Christians, right? An easy life. I accept Christ and let me just take the cruise to heaven. No, it's a battleship. But the difference about knowing about God and knowing him, knowing about God and knowing him is a life lived out for Christ. Are you just on the academic side of Christ? You can explain all the core foundational truths of salvation. You can use biblical language like a pro, all the doctrine, lots of information. But is there simply just data or is there a relationship with Christ? This is what Paul is praying People don't know Christ, just know him, but they know him by experiencing him. I have this friend, and I did ask for permission to make fun of him, so he said it was okay. And we grew up together for a very long time, and this is going to sound judgmental, but it's not. Maybe it is. Um, but he gave me permission, so whatever. There was a period of time that this friend in my life, that every time we talked on the phone to catch up, he lives not close, so we have to catch up on the phone. And we just talk about life and what's going on in life. And then, you know, there's the part, how's the church going? And he makes fun. He used to make fun of me, called me reverend or archbishop or the pope or, you know, all those fun things. Still saying, are you still stealing money from everyone's little purse and all this other stuff? He's, he's a sweet friend now. <laughs> so we'd catch up and I said, well, what about you? What about your relationship with Christ? Because, yeah, it's good. And, and it's so interesting. And this is not an exaggeration. For years, literally years, probably seven, eight, nine, ten years or so, every time I would ask him, what about the church? He goes, yeah, you know me and the church. Well, what have you read in the Bible? Yeah, I read the Bible. What have you read? And every time, again, not an exaggeration, he would tell me about the spotted goats in Genesis 30. He would say, oh, yeah, I was just reading about the spotted goats in Genesis 30. And then you can trace them back to all the spotted goats. Now, I'm like, okay, you've said that like the last five years. How interesting is it? And he would just go on and talk about what he'd learned about Jacob and the goats. And for a while, I didn't actually say anything. See, the thing is, is back in sixth grade at a VBS that we both attended in Long Beach, this may not matter to you. The guy brought a spotted goat. Now, if you're from the city, a goat is like, whoa, there's a goat. For you guys who, like, raise them, you're like, it's a goat. But for us, city dwellers, he was telling me what he read, what he remembered back in sixth grade. It was over 20 years ago. 
for many years of his life, he was just a mess. He would make one bad decision after another. He was super successful in the world, made tons of money, super successful, lots of things that we would call in the world success, but his personal life was so sad. You know what else is even sadder? Is he was the one who could memorize near full chapters of scripture when we were younger. And that's what he would bring up. And I'm not discrediting it. You know when you're in a bad situation, all of a sudden Christ sends that reminder of the scripture that you memorize. I'm not talking about that. He had nothing to go on in his personal walk except for sixth grade. That's really sad. He eventually surrendered his life to Christ. So now when we talk on the phone, I ask him, so how are the spotted goats? And he said, yeah, I haven't read that in years. Now he works at a church. Now he's serving the Lord. He surrendered worldly success. And he would say, for a long time, I felt like I was smarter than everybody else because I could memorize scripture. But I didn't know him. I only knew what the pages pointed to. And it wasn't until he surrendered his life to Christ and joined a church and began being part of a church. See, what Paul is saying here to the church in Ephesians and really what he's saying to all of us is don't just know Christ, but know him. Experience true wisdom. Paul is talking about this wisdom that changes your life. A changed life that moves from your head to your heart. That's what he's beginning with that prayer. Again, he's saying, God, let them see themselves the way that you do and if I may say this to you this morning this can happen right now if you've been a Christian for a while and and you just know him but not know him you can for those of you who are just here just to be here you can know him for the first time you don't have to get your ducks in a row you don't have to get it cleaned up your life right now to know him So that is the opening prayer, the opening stanza of his prayer. Then in verse 17, he moves on and and Paul says, asking God, the glorious father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you that spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Uh, New King James, ESV, NIV, other ones describe it this way. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, his glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That spirit or wisdom of revelation. So wisdom is moving the knowledge that you have in your head to your heart, to the application where you trust him and you serve him, not just know him. Revelation, it's not just an emotional, spiritual junkie moving from high to high to high. I have to feel this amazing experience from God. Now, don't get me wrong. God created emotions. Um, when, we, when we worship, it always gets me every time. I'm not talking about that. I'm also not suggesting to trust your heart. A heart can be wicked. It is wicked unless we have a new heart. I'm not saying that. But if we just ride high to high to high, you know, and, and if you grew up in church and you went to junior high camp or middle school camp or high school camp, college camp, camp camp, old camp, middle camp. You, you, we talked about those high moments. Those are great, but you can't live there. can't live on the mountain of transfiguration. I'm not talking about just this revelation that he's talking about. Not just, again, not just the wisdom, but the revelation. 
is that you continue to move in your relationship with God regardless of how you feel in that moment. So he's dealing with your head and your heart at the same time. That you experience God on the mountaintops, but that you can also experience God's grace and mercy in the ordinary, boring moments of the day of the week. That's why when young people are dating, within about a month, you use up all of your money on each other because you think every time you go out, you have to go to a fancy restaurant. No. But that's what, I want to experience this candlelight dinner every time. But we, we laugh at that. I, I remember that. Sorry, Natalie. But I, I, I remember that. Everything has to be this grand gesture. But really, where we grow the most is in the very bottom of the valley. No more money, no more candlelight, and it's difficult. The, the ordinary, boring moments just as much as the train wreck where this, revela- this revelation of what Paul is talking about of God is not dependent on the earth-shattering display of his power. It's just the whispers that I am with you. This is the prayer. He's not praying. It's going to get hard because the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, they go through some trials, so much so that later on in Revelation, you've lost your first love. He's warning them. One of the significant hang-ups that I believe that all Christians can run into is not seeing Christ in their lives in the present. I'll say that again. One of the significant hang-ups that I believe that all Christians can run into is not seeing Christ in their lives in the present. This is what I mean by that. It's real easy for us to either concentrate on the good old days, maybe last week, the last camp, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Or we concentrate on the future, one day, specifically heaven. We concentrate only on time periods that we are not in. We concentrate sometime in the past where we really felt God's presence or where we were really close in our walk with him. You know, I I have this great... um, Every time I think of my pastor growing up, no one can compare to that guy. Best sermons. The biggest pastor you've ever seen, he was like six, seven, and who knows how many pounds he weighed. And his hands were like as big as your head, and he had such a cool voice. Like that, you're not going to beat that. But I can't live there. He's in heaven. Or I can't live there that one day... In heaven, yes, there's hope. But feeling God's presence, experience his presence right now. Or we'll be like my friend who always is reminding me of the spotted goat. If not a hyper focus, it's not a hyper focus of the past or a hyper focus of the future. Maybe there's no nostalgia for you, but one day, someday in the future, when I get to this age, this moment, when I have kids, don't have kids, when I get married, when I don't get whatever the situation is. Because this is what happens when we don't experience Christ right now in the moment is the people around us, our friends and our family who, do, who are not believers, and even for some who are believers, what they need the most is to see us believe that Christ is with us right now in the present. People need to see a God that you believe in, in the right here and the right now. 
The lost world needs a God who is present because he is. I'm not saying we do not honor the past. I'm not saying we don't hope for the future. We just enjoy the moment in Christ. Now, people need to see in us a trust and a belief in Christ in the present. And it can happen right now for you. If you're sitting here and you find yourself thinking or feeling you haven't been in the presence with Christ in a long time, you don't feel him. Again, don't try to get all your ducks in a row or you're immediately going to the issue. I know Monday comes and it's hard. I have the Monday blues every Monday without fail. And it's usually a reflection on how well or bad or good I think today went. Or what I have to face for the rest of the week. See, that is this, the true of revelation, this truth of revelation is what Paul is saying to the church. Our knowledge of God does not leave us to guess if he's here. He has revealed the truth in us. And we live in an age where we have the Holy Spirit. He is with us. God has revealed this truth in his son through his spirit and in his word and we are anchored in the revealed truth. So then he, he moves from that saying, okay guys, that's my beginning of my prayer. Are you ready for what's next? And then he prays the next part of his prayer, verse 18. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light or New King James NIV Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened means the same thing. It technically, if you want to be nerdy, here's your Jeopardy thing. It technically, if you want to do a word-for-word translation, what he's saying is, I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened by a flood of light. So it means all of that. And obviously, our hearts don't have eyes. Way back long time ago, before we understood the actual body before people understood that they understood that our soul and our being was all in our heart. That's where everything came from. Again, I think I had mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It was either from your heart or from your gut. That's why we say, I just knew it in my gut. Or where do you get butterflies? Not in your head, in your gut, in your heart, in, in your core is what he's saying. So with that understanding, he says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray, well, I'm jumping ahead. That's the third part he prays. But eyes of our heart, this term, this, this meaning connects to uh, seven that I counted from the Old Testament, especially in Psalms. The, the, the eyes of our heart, that we would return, that the light would be revealed. So just quickly with the remaining time that we have, the three things that he prays for specifically in this wisdom and in this revelation, in this surrender of God, here's the three things that he's praying for the church. And I would suggest we could pray this every day for these three things in our walk. When you go home, these are the things you can pray for for your spouse. These are the three things you can pray for your children, for your friends, for yourself. These are the three things. He prays for that they would know the hope, the riches of the glory of your inheritance, his inheritance, and the power. So the three things he's praying for specifically for this church is hope, inheritance and power. 
Now, right off the bat, spoiler alert, Paul is saying we already have this for those who are in Christ. He's not saying that later on there will be a hope, which there will be. He's not saying later on there will be inheritance, which there will be. Later on there will be power. He's saying right now you have this. Again, he's praying to a new church, and he wants them to grasp this understanding. And I really think that if we can come back to this, those three things, our lives will be so much fuller. So let's talk about the hope that he explains. Hope in the world is different than biblical hope. Hope in the world is a maybe, a fingers crossed, a knock on wood, tap on glass. I thought of a whole bunch of other ones, but you get the point. Where I sure hope he knows what he's doing. Really what you're saying is he looks like a fool. It's probably not going to be successful, right? That's the hope of the world. Maybe fingers crossed. But hope for the believer is a hope in a person that is 100% assured. The things that God has said will come true. The hope of his calling. The hope that he has called us to be his own. The hope that we have that you have been redeemed. The hope that you have that you've been forgiven. The hope that you have that you've been adopted because of what Christ has done on the cross. The restoration of all things who are in Christ. That's the hope that he's talking about. That's the specific hope that he says in verse 18. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those he has called. Not this, I don't know what he's going to do. I'm not sure if I'm worthy. Newsflash, you're not. Great news, Christ is. You win. So this hope, this restoration, this, this hope, it's again not a maybe, it's a full trust. It's fixing our eyes on the things that are eternal that will come. This hope is based on our new identity in Christ. This identity of your adoption as sons and daughters to the king. As you walk deeper and more intimately in this hope in Christ, it changes your life because you won't spend your whole life trying to find hope. You already have it. You're not looking for victory. You already have it. It's the now but not yet understanding. We are saved What are we? Are we saved when we believe and put our trust in Christ? Yes. Are we being saved? Yes. Will we be saved in heaven? Yes. So it's ongoing, this hope. And then perhaps one of my favorite parts is rich inheritance. He talks about if we have this hope, if we have this new identity, we have this inheritance. Again, he says says that specifically. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Have you ever considered the fact that you are God's inheritance? That's what he says. You holy people or you saints, which means holy people set apart. Rich inheritance of the saint. This is twofold. First, our inheritance we have and God's inheritance. Just quickly, just Romans 8, 14 through 17, Paul explains it this way. Romans 8, I think it'll be on the screen here. It says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. 
So if you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, instead you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And I spend a lot of time talking about adoption, that there's security more than a natural son in the Roman time. Now we call him Abba, father or daddy, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory, but we are to share his glory. We must also share in his suffering. Usually we leave that part out. We like the glory, not the suffering. We always imagine that we hit the home run, catch the touchdown, score a goal, yes, hockey, we always dream of that, but then sometimes, you know, you do have to practice. You do have to experience that. And then perhaps even more mind-blowing to me is that the greatest inheritance is God himself, but even more, we are God. We are the inheritance of God. It's because we have a new identity in Christ. Psalm 28.9, Psalm 33.12 talks about that. We are the reward for Christ's suffering. So what is, how do we give an inheritance to God? Why are we the inheritance to God? It's the reward for Christ's suffering on our behalf. The church, God's people, we are his treasure. Inheritance means just that. We gain a gift based on what has been passed on to us because we are part of the family. If you think of worldly terms and inheritance, Great-great-grandpa died, left you lots of money. Whew, that's an inheritance. Signed over in his will. Did you earn it? Probably not. Why? You're his great-great-grandson. It's just passed on because you're part of this family. And yes, again, we get an inheritance of heaven later. But we have security in this eternal life. But now we get an inheritance of a new life and a new identity here on earth. And I'll just talk about this identity here. I believe this new identity is the inheritance we get to experience, not just later. For some reason, helping out at um, youth group on Wednesday nights, a lot of the middle school boys, for some reason, want to know what kind of bodies they're going to get in heaven. And I don't know how not to offend anybody in here, so just forgive me up front, please. I hear that from middle school boys and people who are old, <laughs> really, really old. And if you want me to give you a number, I'm not, I'm not. Over a hundred, okay? What kind of bodies? So the 105-year-old wants to know, do they get the 20-year-old bodies? The middle school boys really are asking, when do I get muscles and hair on my face? That's what they're really asking. What, what is this new identity? When do I get this new body? Well, the new body, yes, of course, in heaven. What age? I have no idea. It's new, so your knees won't hurt anymore. So congratulations there. But this concept of already but not yet, we have a new identity. We have the fullness of our identity now that will be completed in heaven with Christ without the world pulling at us. Right now, our new identity, we still have the world and sin pulling at us, trying to take off our new identity. Because you are, a, you are valuable to Christ. You are his treasure. You do not need to find value in anything else 
And boy, do we sure try to do that, don't we? Who are you? What do you find that gives you value outside of Christ? See, here's the thing that I was just considering. If we do have a new identity in Christ, for those of us who are believers in Jesus, which I believe, we actually start from a position of strength. Christ is our firm foundation. We sing those songs. We read it from Isaiah 33, 6. He will be the firm foundation for their entire lives. He is our cornerstone. That means we are starting from a position of strength. Our identity is Shakir. We are not starting. I know I said that funny. I say Shakir wrong every time I'm up here. We are not starting in a pit. We are not starting in a hole. We are starting on a firm foundation. We are no longer in that pit that we are trying to dig ourselves out of. Every time we find something else to give us identity or worth, we just throw ourselves in the pit. That's why this new year, if it hasn't already been a disappointment to you, will. Have you noticed that 2024 is much like 2023? Maybe you eat less chocolate, but maybe you've gone to the gym two more times. Maybe you've, whatever, fill in the blank. But it hasn't fulfilled you. Because only our identity in Christ. Because every time we give something else as our identity, we just throw ourselves in the pit. We are starting from a position of strength. We are not starting in this big hole where we have to work so hard to get up to the level playing field and where we get up upon this rock and we finally build our life. No, God picks us up, puts us on a firm foundation, gives us a new identity from a position of strength in Christ. What Paul is telling all of the readers who will read this is our inheritance is in our new identity, which we have. We are starting from the pole position. Again, remember what Warren Wiersbe, his quote, remind them of where we're starting. Now, to be clear, when we talk about identity, we can have the tendency to think before Christ, I had a bad identity. Now that I'm in Christ, good identity. I have no more identity crisis, and may I say to you that it is easy for a Christian to be around other Christians and still have identity crisis. We look for approval. This past Wednesday, I had a teach at youth group, and at youth group, I brought my goalie gear. I know you're disappointed I didn't bring it. I almost did, but I wasn't brave enough to ask anybody to put it on, but uh, at and uh, we were just talking about, take, I was continue, continuing on what Braden had taught the previous week and just talking about the old man is gone, the new man is here. The old woman is gone, the new woman is here. That means every day you have to put on, we went through Colossians, Ephesians 4, which we'll get there. Maybe in Ephesians 4, I'll bring my goalie, we'll see. But what we were talking about is every day you have to put it on. Every day you have to choose to put on this new clothes. You know, I had joked even... You know, you take a shower and put on dirty clothes. See middle school boys, right? No, you don't do that. This new nature, you need to put it on. But also, you need to put it on for yourself. On Wednesday night, which I think applies here, is that your parents' prayers for you are genuine, but you also need to pray for yourself. My prayers as a pastor for all of you is genuine, but you need to pray for yourselves. Every day, get up and put on your 
new self every day. And the reason I brought my goalie gear is my goalie gear is fit just for me. All the buckles, everything, all the strap, everything is fit for me. And then I was looking for a volunteer and no one would put it on. So my dear son had to because he's my son. And, uh, and, and if we were standing next to each other, he's not taller than me yet, but probably by next year. But I'm also way rounder than him, right? So it fits me and not him. So he, has to, he put on this goalie gear that was way too big for him. He needs to put on his own, just like we need to put on our own. And the worst thing we can do is try to be what other people tell us to be. I'm not saying don't seek godly wisdom. Of course do that. I just know for me, and I've talked to many of you, there's been a time where you felt God had told you to do something when you brought it up to your friends, Christian friends, they gave you that look. And it totally just destroyed what God had been doing in your life. Because God saying yes wasn't enough when your friends said, really? This is what Paul is talking about, this knowledge. So, so, you know, I feel like I need to start volunteering Wednesday nights at youth group. That's not a plug, but if you, come on. And then you tell your spouse, or you tell your friends, and you're like, you're not really good with kids. Ugh. And maybe there might be some truth to that, so you're working through that. But if you know that you know that you know that you're being called something to something, and you say no, you're just throwing yourself into the pit. Everyone has value because God made you. But followers of Christ ha has this double portion, if you will, because he not only made you, he saved you. Paul is praying, oh, would you know the love of Christ in such a way you would live like you believed in that. Your value in Christ is so much more than how much you make, who you marry, all those things. And all those things are important. But your starting point has to be your identity is in Christ. There's a story from first century Rome. And the Romans, when the, when the Ephesians and these other churches were starting out, the Roman, the Roman government, think Nero at the time, he started to notice that these Christians were popping up. And these churches were popping up. So his automatic thought was, they must have a lot of money. We need to get some of that money. So uh, Otherius and others had tell, told different versions of this story that uh, Nero would send Roman soldiers to the church to persecute them, but also tell them specifically, give me your treasure. So this, this church in Ephesus, as the story goes, goes on to say that they said, yes, we do have treasure. Come back tomorrow and we will give you our treasure. So the Roman soldiers, you know, said, you better, you have to, on and on and on with all these threats. So when the Roman soldiers come with their chariots to carry back all this wealth and all this money and think that they're going to make Nero so happy, right when they enter into the church, which is mostly in people's homes and sometimes out in the outer courts, what they laid out before them was themselves. First, they laid out the people who were blind, those who were lame, those who were orphaned, those who were widowed. And then one by one, each person got in line and sat down. And then finally, they said, this is our treasure, Christ in us. Do you view yourself that way? 
Is you, do you view yourself as a treasure of Christ? Would you be okay lining up and saying, this is my most valuable treasure, Christ in me? So of course the Romans got upset, beat them all up, left, said you're hiding, persecution pursues. But they really, really believe that the most treasured thing was a relationship with Christ, with one another. And third, he prays for them to have this power. The more that we know and grow in God, the better our life becomes. It's not because of a lack of issues. It is an understanding that we are on the starting point with power. We don't just say it, we experience this power. Now, this word power, sometimes we think, oh, power goes to your head. Um, That's why we like all the little uh, pop-up mom-and-pop shops until they become a big, huge corporation, then we say their power is corrupt. You know, we we vote for the little man or we support the little man, and then all of a sudden, the power went to your head. Uh, Our sense of power, it's quite interesting, the more I was considering this sense of power, when we, we can have the tendency, I can't speak for all of you, we do have the tendency sometimes for some of us, Dallas Jackson specifically, thinking that person has so much power, they're corrupt. But if I had the power, ha, I would not be corrupt. That's not the power that he's talking about. He's not talking about this power in life, this, this step up from other people. He's talking specifically, as he says, the power of Christ in us. That's why he specifically lays it out as we have, have read uh, from the, at the very end of his prayer. Let's just quickly read that here. He says, verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Just quickly, We read over this, we say yes and amen. How much power do you think it took to raise someone from the dead? A lot. We just, yep, yep, same power, we can do it. But really, if you think about it, slow down. The power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, because he was really dead, that's the power And then he goes on in verse 20 that says, that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So when we see that Christ is seated at the right hand, it's not because he's resting. It's not because he's taking a break. It's not because he said, well, I already died for all of you, so I'm taking a break. This word is actually a legal term saying court is now in session. The judge now is seated That's what he's talking about. He is in control. That's the power that he is talking about. I do wonder if we understand our new identity in Christ and we understand that we do have this power that um, is in us that raised Christ from the dead, then what is it that we are so afraid of? What is it that makes us think, oh, I just can't do that? We We should live our life in a position of victory. You don't just get the death of Christ, the atonement, or the forgiveness of your sins that forgave you. We also get this resurrection, a new life. We are powered up. We level up, whatever you want to call it, with the Holy Spirit. So living in such a way that changes, that charges our life, alive in Christ, death to sin. You can read Romans 6 to see that. It's more than safety for later. 
stored power for later. Do you surrender to this power? Because if we don't, when I don't, I actually live my life on empty. And then he closes out this prayer. Now, verse 21, now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but also the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full of complete and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere. Remember what the Ephesians just came out of, all this paganism, all this sorcery, this witchcraft, all of this, this occult, all this dark demonic stuff, and now they're living in the light. And I have to imagine... In the back of their minds, they are probably thinking, well, what happens to all that dark, yucky stuff? What about all of the nasty stuff that's still part of the... What about this nasty old world? Yes, God is authority. What about the Roman Empire? What about Nero, who is just coming to power? What about all this stuff? He has authority over that, too? Yes. You know this is true now before Christ. I know some of your testimony. You were involved in some very dark and awful things. That has no power over you. All that is under the authority of Christ. And, and I'll say it, this year is an election year. Does Christ have power over whoever is elected for office? Yes. Does he have authority over all the stuff, you, junk you will face in 2020? 24 and beyond? Yes, Christ has authority over all. And the church is his body made complete by Christ. That's what Paul says. There isn't anything else that we need. He fills in all of the gaps. That's the power. That's the authority that we rest under. And why does he say that? It's because he wants us to be the agents of his grace and mercy to a dying world. God will give us everything that we need to face this world. Everything we need to face, the people in our life. Sometimes, just as we close here and consider this, sometimes when I, I or others make statements like that, God will give us everything we need to face the world. We say yes, and we think in broad terms. But what about my coworker? What about the parent who isn't a believer? My kid who's gone astray? What about this hardship, financial, sickness, death, etc. What about that? Does he have authority over that? Yes. Yes. But what does that look like in that situation? It's tethering yourself to Christ. To be part of the church, the church body. If not re- new church, another church. Because that's what he specifically says that he will give the church. And yes, we are the church, but you are not the church by yourself. To tether into that power. Not because renew is so great, but because Christ is so great. And if you are stuck in the past, the good old days of Christ, what he did then, or you're only looking forward, Christ is here now, and he is all that we need. Just quickly, I'll close with William Randolph Hearst. One of my favorite stories about him, you probably know him better than I do, but you know, he built that great castle. But you know, before he built that castle, he hired an agent to go and he told them this very specific thing. I've made all this money, now I want to build the greatest house ever. 
And in order to build the greatest house ever, I need the best land ever. He hired an agent to go scour all across the United States to find the very best land for this very, which is now a castle. About four years later, the agent is giving up hope because nothing quite suits what he knows that Mr. Hurst really enjoys. And as he's riding up, coming back up to his office, he drives through this beautiful land and he thinks, I finally found it. Then he goes and he, inquir- he goes and inquires who owns the land. Guess who owns that land? Mr. Hurst. He wanted the very, very best and come to find out he already had it. He spent, it looks like, over $3 million to look for a land that he already had. And you can go see Hearst Castle now. I do wonder, uh, just as we close as a Christian, if we are looking for something the very best, but we forgot that we already had it. And as he prays, I pray they could see themselves the way that you see them. That they would know the love you have for them. And that they will experience that love every day. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time and for your word, Lord. And so much to cover in this prayer, Lord. And what a wonderful prayer it is, Lord. We thank you that uh, this is a prayer that you had Paul pray over that church 2,000 years ago or so. And now it's the same prayer for us today in this 2024. Lord, will you first speak to anyone in here who does not know you as Lord and Savior? They don't recognize that they are a sinful creature And nothing they can do can save them or clean them except for a surrendered life of belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here, all of us in here who are believers, that we don't just look back at the glory days or look ahead for heaven, but right now we see you and what you're doing. Will you help us stay in this new identity that we have in you? And will you help us put on the new new clothes every day, be more like your son, Lord, will you help us recognize that what we need, we already have in you. Will you help each and every one of us see ourselves the way that you see us, which is Christ. And that's how much you love us. Lord, we thank you for this time. And as we sing a few more songs to you, will you just bring glory to yourself. Thank you that we are your inheritance because of the work of Christ. And that our inheritance, our security is locked in you. Our identity is in you and you alone. We love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.